0: Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, trade and US economics editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: Chad and I have been a bit distracted by Donald Trump's trade policy. But it turns out Brexit is still happening. And we thought we would do an episode to mark the referendum's two-year anniversary.
1: We'll be joined today by Professor Anand Menon of King's College London, who is director of a big research project called The UK in a Changing Europe.
0: We'll also be joined by Ali Renison, Head of Europe and Trade Policy for the Institute of Directors, which is the UK's largest membership organization for business leaders.
1: Two years ago, on June 23rd, 2016, this happened.
0: I hereby give notice that I have certified the following. The total number of ballot papers counted was 33 million five hundred and seventy seven thousand three hundred and forty two the total number of votes cast in favor of remain was sixteen million one hundred and forty one thousand two hundred and forty one the total number of votes cast in favor of leave was seventeen million four hundred and ten thousand seven hundred and forty two This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. (laughs) Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, triggered Article 50, which means that at 11pm UK time on March 29th, 2019, Brexit is scheduled to happen. So, Anand, hello. Hi. Where are we?
2: I think we're pretty much where most EU negotiations end up, which is looking like there won't be an agreement, time running out, Uh, The one thing that should be said is EU agreements usually end in agreement right at the end of the process. So for EU watchers, the way this is going is no surprise at all. The issue for Britain, I suppose, is because the Prime Minister keeps saying we need certainty, life is very, very hard for businesses who need to know what to plan for.
0: So what don't we know?
2: We know remarkably little after two years. We don't know whether there'll be a deal. We don't know whether the UK will crash out without anything at all. We don't know whether the politics will conspire to give us another referendum. We don't know, assuming we get a deal on the so-called Article 50 stuff, if we'll get a trade deal. And we certainly don't know that if we get a trade deal, what it will look like. So the list of what we don't know is alarmingly long.
1: So has anything been agreed at this stage?
2: (laughs) Well, actually, surprisingly enough, quite a lot has been agreed at the technical level. There's been all sorts of really detailed negotiations about whether social security rights can continue, whether you can move them between member states, how much Britain needs to pay to clear its liabilities to the European Union. The problem is, and this is a phrase we hear far too much of in this country, nothing is formally agreed until everything is agreed. And what that means is until they can tick every single box, we have no agreement. And until we have no agreement, we have no certainty that we will leave the European Union with any sort of deal at all. Why has progress been so slow? Well, progress has been so slow for a number of reasons. Divisions here in the UK is probably the primary reason. That's to say the government doesn't know what it wants itself, and the government has fought every inch of the way on the withdrawal agreement. But the big issue now, that getting in the way of everything, is the issue of what happens to Ireland. And here, what you see is the UK government's preferences clashing directly with those of the EU. So so the government, as from the autumn of 2016 has stated quite clearly that it has certain red lines. We will not be under the authority of the EU's court. We will not allow free movement. We will not be in the EU's customs union, which means that Britain can go off and sign its own trade deals with other parts of the world. Now, what those red lines mean, essentially, is there have to be customs and regulatory barriers between the European Union and the United Kingdom. The problem with that is that both sides, the EU and the UK, have also said they are committed to having no border within the island of Ireland. And of course, the external border of the European Union will fall between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So what we have to try and do now, and it's proving beyond the wit of man at the moment, is square the government's commitments to those red lines, which means you have to have borders, with the government's commitment not to have a border. To make progress,
1: there's going to need to be compromise with some of these red lines. So in what direction are things actually heading with the government now?
2: Well, my sense is that the choices are crystallizing at the heart of government now, that increasingly the debate being carried out between civil servants and ministers focuses on three choices. One choice is we can crash out with nothing. And I think pretty much everyone inside government realizes that would be dreadful. Uh, It would put the legal system under which we trade under doubt. It would lead to massive backlogs at ports. It would just be an awful, awful outcome. So essentially now we're we're choosing between two things. Either we honour what the Prime Minister sees as the spirit of the vote, we stick to her red lines, in which case we sign a pretty ordinary looking free trade deal with the European Union, a bit like the deal that the Canadians signed with the European Union. The problem there is the economic hit that would imply. It would imply customs checks, it would imply not solving Northern Ireland, it would involve a slowing down of trade between us and the European Union and crucially for the UK, which is an economy that is 80% services, there would be virtually no agreement in trade on services. Now, I mean, there are those people out there who say, well, the EU will probably go for that because it gives them free trade in the areas where they have a surplus with us and it restricts trade in the area where we have a surplus with them. So services are restricted, goods flow freely. And I can see the cynical reasoning behind that. I think the European Union is unlikely to accept this because the European Union has very publicly attached itself to the notion that its single market is indivisible. So they're not about to say to us, you can stay in the market for goods and not in services. So that leaves us with the third option. And the third option economically is the neatest. We stay inside the whole single market. We stay inside the customs union and we continue to trade pretty much as we do now. The problem there is the politics, because that, of course, crosses every single one of Theresa May's red lines. We'll have to accept free movement of people. We'll have to stay in the customs union and not sign trade deals. And we'll have to remain under the jurisdiction of the EU's court. So in a sense, the prime minister has a choice between saving the economy and honouring the politics. And that's not a choice any political leader wants to face.
0: So I have a follow-up question on option two, this idea that the UK might try to stay in the single market for goods, but not for services. Aside from any horror in the EU, does it even really make much sense? Aren't the two connected?
2: Absolutely. Uh, And I know that this is something that is preoccupying a lot of economists at the moment, but let me give you two examples of where this might break down. A truck driver who drives to Calais with a truck full of goods If you haven't got agreement on for instance mutual recognition of truck driving qualifications then actually you might be saying the truck can come through but the driver can't Uh, so the first thing is actually you probably need a degree of free movement of workers even to make free movement of goods work as smoothly as it does now the second thing is that even if you think about very very famous british manufacturing firms and rolls royce is the one that's been in the headlines recently they actually sell a lot of their Manufactured products at a loss where they make their money is on the ongoing service contracts that accompany those goods So there again Rolls-Royce would say well, it's very kind of you to give us a single marketing goods But unless we have the services angle as well, we're not gonna be able to make the money we're making now So it is increasingly hard to separate the two and actually at borders, that becomes very, very messy indeed. What part of this is outside the single market, which part is in? And the one thing the European Union, as you said, has a horror of is introducing more complexity into its market. So I suspect that there's a very strong mood in Brussels to say no to that.
0: Could you talk about the ways that the UK and the EU were trying to solve the Irish border problem? I didn't think that the British government had accepted any contradiction between its commitment to have an Irish border and its decision to leave the customs union.
2: In giving those three options, what I've self-consciously done is left aside some of the more creative solutions the government itself has put forward. And it's interesting to note that I think in every single speech Theresa May has given on Brexit, the word creativity appears loads of times. And what the British government means by this is finding slightly left field solutions to the Irish problem. And the British government has come up with two. One, which is called MaxFAC, is basically relying on technology. That is to say, you give... Small traders are a free pass to cross the Irish border without being checked. And for big firms, you use uh, tracking technology, you use GPS, you use in some formulations zeppelins over the intra-Irish border, I kid you not, to track trade without the need to stop it at the border. Now, there has been, understandably, on the part of the EU, a degree of scepticism about this, not least because there is no border between developed countries in the world that has relied on technology to the point where they can do away with border checks. So actually, what we're saying to the EU is trust us, we'll figure this out, but we don't know quite how yet. So it doesn't look to me as if that's going to fly for the European Union at the moment. The other alternative the government has put forward is called the customs partnership. Now, this is even more creative in the sense that what the government is saying is, look, we will collect customs on our border for goods, that are going into the European Union on behalf of the European Union. And if those goods stay inside the United Kingdom, and if we're not charging the same tariff as the European Union, we'll let businesses apply to have that tariff back. If you think about the practicalities of this, it is a nightmare. Take for instance, a truckload of sugar arrives at the British border, some of which is due for the EU market, some of which is bound to stay in the United Kingdom. What this scheme would require is for the British government to be able to track every single packet of sugar inside that truck to know how much of it is due for the EU tariff and how much of it is due to a refund on the tariff paid at the border. The European Union gave this short shrift unsurprisingly and said, look, this will not work. All of which takes us to the fabled intra-Irish backstop solution, because what the European Union has said is this, look. With the best will in the world, neither of your creative solutions is going to work now. And I think they whisper amongst themselves, and in fact, they'll never work, but we won't tell you that. But what we need is a solution to the Irish border problem immediately. And that solution has to be, because of the dangers of a border, that Northern Ireland itself remains inside the single market to all intents and purposes, and within the customs union so that we avoid a border between the north and south of Ireland as both the British government and the EU have promised they will. Now, that sounds great until you look at the politics because what that solution means is that there has to be the regulatory border between the island of Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So in a sense, there has to be a customs and regulatory border in the Irish Sea. And this, again, is where politics kicked in. The unionists in the north of Ireland absolutely reject outright, without any discussion at all, the notion that Northern Ireland should be separated by a barrier from the rest of the UK. Because their whole raison d'etre as politicians is to preserve Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom, the same way as England, Scotland and Wales are. But it goes deeper than that. I think a lot of people talk about the democratic unionists on whose votes Theresa May depends, but they're not really The only problem, the Conservative Party, the governing party is called the Conservative and Unionist Party. They have plenty of MPs that would reject any deal that sees a border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. And don't forget the Labour Party in all of this. For those of you who aren't keeping up with British electoral politics, Labour's strategy for the next election hinges on their ability to take away votes from the Scottish Nationalist Party. If Labour want a majority, they've got to win SNP seats in Scotland. If Labour agrees to a deal that gives Northern Ireland a special status, the next thing the Scots will do, the Scottish Nationalists and turn around and say, well, if you can do it for them, you can do it for us. And that might lead to a surge in votes for the Scottish Nationalists, which won't suit Labour. So the politics is hideous all round. So again, what we have is is the distinction between the real world of a functioning economy, where you don't want that border in the island of Ireland, and political reality in the UK, which seems to rule out the only solution that will work. So what's next? What are the deadlines that we should be looking out for? Well, if there's one thing you don't do in Britain at the moment, given the state of the country, it's say what's next, because things can change very, very rapidly indeed. There's the European Union summit on the 28th and 29th. This was meant to be the summit at which the Irish situation was resolved. It won't be. Not very much will happen, partly because the talks haven't moved on, partly because the EU has got so many other pressing issues to talk about. There's then the government white paper that they've promised to us in mid-July, I think now. Now, they've promised things before and not delivered, but if that comes out, it might clarify some of the contradictions we've spoken about. And at the end of the month, Parliament votes on a bill... And particularly on the amendment to a bill that would force the government to stay in a customs union. As ever, we have no earthly clue how that vote will go because our politics is so unpredictable. But if the amendment carries, the government's negotiating red lines or one of them on the customs union essentially disappears. So that will be a game changer. As we move into the autumn, there's a summit in October at which I think the Irish problem has to be solved. Otherwise, we're getting very, very close to the wire. And everything has to be signed and sealed, I suspect, by December, because the European Parliament has to ratify this deal. And the European Parliament is a uniquely slow Parliament that requires three months to do this.
0: Anand, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. That was Professor Anand Menon of King's College London. And now we are going to talk to Ali Renison. First, I asked Ali what exactly her job is.
3: Brexit all the time, everywhere. Um, Effectively, I like to think of what I do as being a policy wonk, but in a business organization. So I would say that my role is sort of split between actual lobbying work, but also drawing up policy recommendations based on the discussions we have with members for the kind of direction of travel on Brexit and trade we think the government should be headed in.
1: All this uncertainty that we've been hearing about with Brexit going on, what do your members think about all of this?
3: I think for the vast majority of business at the moment, it still really feels like business as usual. There have been polls that have been done to show that, uh, you know, a majority of the public think that we have already left. We know that we're going to have a um, very likely a transitional period come March of next year, where from a business perspective, everything is going to look and feel the same for at least a year and a half. But then when you start talking and drilling down in terms of conversations with business leaders about how they're approaching it, there is a sense of, I think, panic about how little progress there is being made. I would say that there is a uh, notable substantial minority, um, around about a quarter, who are definitely holding off on new investment decisions. So you are starting to see it trickle down in that impact. It really differs by sector. So I think, particularly from a preparation point of view, in the financial services industry, a lot of our members have already had to submit plans last year to the financial regulators in the UK, outlining the details of their contingency plans, particularly for the big listed firms. Whereas for a lot of other companies, particularly those in the supply chain, it's not really featuring their high on their agenda yet, because they assume they're going to have enough time to have it all sorted out. And so we are sort of worrying on their behalf to make sure that that is secured.
1: Amid all this uncertainty, it might make sense for some of these major companies to actually leave the UK and move their operations to the remainder of the EU27. Are we seeing that kind of thing happening?
3: I think at this stage, it's still a notable minority of companies that are actively making those moves. There's a whole host of different reasons why some companies are and some companies aren't. I think, for example, in the financial services industry, there may be a lot of UK institutions that already have footprints, physical footprints in Europe, so it's less of an issue. But you do see it particularly for foreign-based institutions, so Goldman Sachs, Airbus, which is European-owned. You see a lot of other companies looking at this and saying, right, okay, we need to make sure that we have a European base to be able to continue accessing that market. I think also in manufacturing, it's while they're not as advanced, uh, generally speaking, particularly in the supply chain, where a lot of companies may not know where they are in the supply chain, as surprising as that sounds, apart from the smaller ones, you are starting to see a lot of the bigger companies like Airbus, who have to make these huge investment decisions, three, four, five years in a row, you know, saying we can't wait any longer, we have investment cycles that are finishing or starting and we need to make the decisions now and I think probably particularly not helping is that the UK government hasn't been particularly clear about what it is that it's going to ask for and I think that would certainly help narrow down the kind of scenarios that that business has to plan for because in the absence of specific proposals around customs around regulatory alignment it's obvious that businesses who are making those big plans are going to do so on the basis of assuming there's no deal. So they're looking at what does being a third country actually mean. And I think that's a lot of work for a smaller company to have to do. You know, very few people are going to bring on someone just to do Brexit planning. We know that the majority of our members are going to do it in-house, they've told us. They're not going to bring in external consultants. And so... There is an assumption underpinning all of that, that there is going to be enough time to make those adjustments, which leads you very quickly on to that thorny discussion of how long is the transitional period going to be, when's it going to end, what's going to come into effect during and after it. So these are the kind of issues that we're hoping are going to get resolved as part of the withdrawal agreement.
0: When you hear about some of the proposed solutions being floated, like this solution for the Irish border in terms of a technological solution to this incompatibility between having no border but also being outside of the customs union what do you think?
3: I think there's a lot of misconceptions that are underpinning a lot of the discourse at least in the public arena at the moment there's been so much of a focus just on the word customs customs union customs arrangement even though there are very clear definitions for what a customs union is and isn't that people seem to have assumed that the only thing that matters for the physical movement of goods is customs when in fact technology is not going to help you if you have divergence on On sanitary and phytosanitary standards, particularly in respect of the Irish border for the agri-food sector there.
0: So technology could solve the problem of something moving from A to B, and some computer automatically checks the tariff revenue. But if the thing has to be inspected to make sure it lives up to health and safety standards, then you can't automate that away. You need to physically be next to the good, and that means there needs to be a physical check.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to customs, even though just doing this would be unprecedented, you could conceive of a situation where you could have, at least for import purposes, customs compliance basically managed through self-assessment or at commercial premises. You can't really do that when it comes to more sort of non-tariff barrier-related issues. So a prime example of that is around the processing of milk. Very often, Northern Irish farmers will send their milk to Ireland to be processed, and then it comes back up. It crosses the border multiple times. And if... The UK and the EU, it's not even if they diverge really, it's if there is a possibility for divergence and the EU feels that there is a potential threat for something being let in on the basis of the UK not automatically following those rules, you have to have those inspections put up and done at the border. People have to physically inspect them. So, And keeping in mind that I think the stats very often show, just for example, on when it comes to the Republic of Ireland, about 80% of the checks that were done on third country imports were not duty related, so you see how important the regulatory side of the checks are. So in a sense, you can't really talk about, when it comes to the overall physical movement of goods, how much of a role technology can play until you've had that discussion about policy alignment in a regulatory capacity.
1: So in the United States, we're frequently frustrated by President Trump's tweets, whether it's on trade deficits or reciprocal tariffs, NAFTA, all of these things. Do you have similar sorts of experiences there in the UK?
3: One of the big frustrations and uh, similarities I see with what's going on in the US is this assumption that someone is not playing fair. So in the US example, it's, you know, this idea that how unfair is it that the EU charges a 10% MFN tariff on auto imports when the US only imposes 2.5% and isn't that the EU not playing fair? Well, no, not really, because that's how it applies its tariff rates to imports from everywhere that it doesn't have a trade deal with. Similarly, I think here, people are assuming that the EU is just being inflexible, in some areas it is, but this idea that, you know, well, can't we just have things continue as it is, but have our own freedom to change our laws whenever it suits us? Well, no, no other country in the world apart from those in the single market have that kind of privileged access, because the idea is that you can have things circulating freely because you know that you're conforming to the same standards and rules and regulations.
1: So Ellie, is there anything positive happening in the Brexit negotiations at the moment?
3: Generally speaking, I think from talking to businesses, where you see positivity is, I think it's psychologically making quite a few companies think more carefully about what their global footprint is in a sense that before they may have relied on the EU market and not looked further afield. It's not for the greatest of reasons, but if trade barriers are put up, you have companies thinking about, right, I'm going to have to actually get serious about exporting to other parts of the world if I'm going to lose my, my, my place in a European supply chain, for example. So the reasons aren't the best, but I think that the way that a lot of businesses are starting to think about reacting to it is relatively speaking positive. Ali, thank you very much.
1: So that's all for this week. A special thanks to Ali Rennison from the Institute of Directors and also to Anand Menon from King's College. Thanks to them both for joining us and updating us on all things Brexit.
0: As usual, I recommend Trade Talks to all your friends, regardless of which country's bad trade policy rhetoric they are suffering under. On Twitter, I'm at Samaya Keynes, and we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.
3: Because if one year of uncertainty on from the referendum wasn't enough, two is more than we can handle.